All right. We're clapping. Kids, good morning. Front row. It's awesome. Not so much. All right, grab a Bible. We're going to John chapter 3, verse 16. We want to be a community that is continually full of awe and wonder at uh, the beauty, majesty, and brilliance of our God. And so we wanted to take one of the very obvious verses of the Bible and spend lots of time unpacking it just to remind ourselves that we don't know all that we think we know. John chapter 3, verse 16. Let's read it together. If you need a blue Bible, by the way, go ahead and let one of our ushers know. Everyone knows a blue is God's favorite color. And that's why the Bibles are that color. Yep, yep, funny every time. Evidently not. Now, let's read it together. John uh, 3, verse 16. Ready? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, if you're keeping score at home, we've got three weeks left. Believes in Him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. So th- those are our next three weeks. Last week, we talked about the idea of the whoeverness of the invitation of Jesus. That, there, that the thing that was so scandalous about this Jesus was that there were clear definitions of right and wrong and pure and impure and in and out, and He just violated all of them. And he would go after the misfits, the outcasts, the notorious sinners. He'd go after the religious folks and the great in Israel. He'd go after the poor in Israel and those that weren't as great. With the same invitation, the kingdom, his rule uh, is available now. God's rule is available on earth through him. And that invitation was given to everybody, but it has to be received through faith. And so it's not just the whoeverness that the invitation is given to, but it's whoever believes in him. And so we want to look at the idea of what does it mean to believe. So if you would, go to uh, John chapter 8, verse 48. We're, gonna, we're going to spend some time beating up the idea that believing just means having the right information about Jesus. And then we want to look at what it actually means. John chapter 8. When Jesus walked the earth, I don't know if you know this, if you're new to church. When Jesus walked the earth, he didn't have a sign uh, that he carried around that said, I'm the Messiah, ask me how. Right? He didn't... He, like he, there, he was obscure. I mean, this is in, in, God's, in God's economy, in one sense, God is very obvious. You can look out your window and know there's something. But in another sense, there, there is what theologians call the hiddenness of God. That he doesn't, you know, write across the sky, hey, Mike Erie, believe in me. You're right? I mean, there's this, and, and Jesus was the same way. I mean, Jesus was born uh, in, a, in a stable, uh, in, a, in a feeding trough. He was announced to shepherds and not to kings. I mean, there was this hiddenness to him. And so there was lots of confusion about this Jesus when he walked the earth. In fact, uh, he, was in a, he was in a disagreement with uh, some Jewish religious leaders, uh, John 8, 48. Here's what they said. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed? Now, I don't, know, I don't know what culture you're from. I don't care what culture you're from. That's not an encouragement, right? That's not an affirmation. Samaritans in the first century were Jews who'd intermarried with non-Jewish folks, and so they were considered half-breeds, uh, and demon-possessed people are never really welcome at dinner parties, right? So there, there's a sense that, that some of the religious folks weren't real fans of Jesus. Uh, go, if you would, to Mark chapter 3. Even his family at times, like you read the Christmas story and you think, oh, that's so cute. Here come the, the kings and the wise men offering gifts. And it says, Mary treasured all of these things in her heart. And oh, it's awesome. But they, they, they didn't always get the whole Jesus thing. 
Mark chapter 3, there were moments when they just didn't quite get it. John, uh, Mark 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. How, how crowded does it have to be so that you cannot even eat? When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Now, I know my parents thought that about me when I was growing up, but I never pretended to be Messiah. So at least I had that in my favor. So at least at one point, and we read later that Jesus' own brothers didn't, didn't buy the whole Messiah thing. So his family at one point thought he was crazy. The religious leaders looked at him and said, aren't we right in saying you're demon-possessed in a Samaritan? Go if you would to Matthew uh, chapter 16. Jesus asked the crowd about the, what the crowds thought. If you remember, the disciples, those closest to Jesus, it took them a while to figure out who he actually was, right? It took them towards the end of his ministry to go, oh yeah, you really are Messiah. Right before they give the right answer, Jesus asks, what do the crowds say about me? Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is a title, messianic title out of Daniel 7. So he's asking, in other words, what do the crowds think? The disciples replied, some say that you're John the Baptist, who, interestingly enough, had been beheaded earlier in the story, so evidently John's risen from the dead. Southers say Elijah, who was a prophet that lived hundreds of years previously, or maybe Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So the crowds weren't quite sure about this. Jesus, they thought maybe he was a prophet who'd come back. His parents, at least at one point, thought he was out of his mind. And the religious leaders insulted him by calling him a Samaritan and demon-possessed. Now what's fascinating is this confusion around Jesus exists for almost his entire ministry, but there is one group that always recognized who Jesus was. Go, if you would, to Mark chapter 1. There was one group that always knew who Jesus was. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Confusion from his family, the religious leaders, the crowds. Mark 1, 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went to the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. Now, the teaching style of the day was that you would quote other rabbinical authorities. Jesus just quoted himself. Right? Remember when he says that? You've heard it said, but I tell you? That was, pretty, that was pretty out of the norm. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. That's interesting. Mark chapter 5. Same thing happens. Jesus takes a trip over to the non-Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. The welcoming committee consists of a man possessed by many demons. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell in his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? It's fascinating when you read the Gospels. His family wasn't quite sure. The crowds weren't quite sure. Even his disciples weren't quite sure. The religious leaders were unclear. The only group that consistently recognized Jesus of Nazareth were demons. In fact, they were the group most likely to pass an informational quiz given by a seminary. If you're just testing, 
theology. Demons had good theology. Think about that. In other words, they had the right answers about Jesus. Would we say that they believed in Jesus? What does it mean to believe? See, I'm convinced the American church has convinced us that to believe means you memorize a creed, you recite the right answers, you intellectually agree with the right information about Jesus, but if that's all believing is, then demons believe too. We want to suggest that right answers are necessary, but they're only the beginning of the journey, not the end of it. That the narrow gate that Jesus speaks about is Himself, not information about Him. And what has happened in our churches is that there are many people who are absolutely convinced they know Jesus when in actuality all they've mentally done is agree with some facts about Him. They don't know Him at all. And when we look at heaven and hell the next couple of weeks, the one constant in Jesus' teaching about the last judgment is you will be surprised. That is the only consistent thread in his teaching. There is a great reversal coming. The insiders who thought they were in are not. The first will be last. The last will be first. And it will really be shocking. Because there are, whole, there are just whole bunches of us that think that following Jesus just means listening to Jesus and intellectually agreeing. And I tell you, that's not following. That's just listening. Jesus is interested in followers. I moved here from the great state of Ohio, shaped like a heart, because it is the heart of God. Vindicated last night. After a season of exile, we've returned to the promised land. Different message. When I moved here from California, I know some of you have heard me tell this story, but I find it fascinating. When I moved to California, I had to get a driver's license from California. I discovered why the DMV is despised in the state of California. Because Jesus loves those people, but we don't have to, right? He died for them, so we don't have to. But I, I'm just teasing. We have to love them. But in Ohio, the DMV, it's just a thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. You show up when it opens, here, I didn't realize that you have to show up three hours ahead of time. And, and so, so I show up when the DMV opens, and, and it's like a two-hour line just to get in. And I'm going, oh, okay, I'm not in Ohio anymore, evidently. And then I get to the front line. I say, hey, I need, a new, I need a new driver's license. Okay, we have to take a driving test. Oh, do I have to actually drive? No, you just have to take a written test. Oh, cool. Well, what's the written test cover? Well, here's a little book. Great, when can I take a test? There's another two-hour line, two line over there. So I get the book, I stand in the two-hour line, I memorize the information. Not one question on the actual test talked about how I actually drove my car. All the information was the theory, right? How many feet should there be between you and the car in front of you? And when there's a dotted line on your right and it's a bike lane, when can you get over to make a right hand? I mean, it had nothing to do with how I actually growth. And what's fascinating to me is that we look at a relationship with Jesus exactly the same way. We think that it doesn't matter how you actually live, as long as you have the right information, you're fine. That you can do whatever you want, stay in charge of your entire life, pray a prayer when you're six years old, know that the right answer in any church service is Jesus, show up and go, I'm in. If that's all it is, then demons are in too. That's the point. And none of us would say they're in. Jesus instead talks about 
an invitation to be in his kingdom as if you were going to a dinner party and you knocked on the front door and the host opened the door and if the host knows you, you're in. If the host doesn't know you, you're not. But it's your relationship to the host that matters, not the information you have about him. So we want to beat up on the idea that memorizing facts about Jesus constitutes faith in Jesus. That's the beginning. Now do you see this Young lady, how Caucasian she is, and the fact that she's still responding to me. (laughs) That says that you Caucasian people can do that too. It's okay in a church for a little back and forth. And you know, I tell you what, someday, someday, maybe at the last judgment, God will reveal that my heart is black (laughs) and that I should have been a black preacher. Now, sir, why are you walking out on that point? I don't mean to, this isn't a racial thing. It's just, it's just more of a commentary on. Are you not entertained? (laughs) Oh, I know. Come on. Now. Biblical faith. When you talk about what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Faith. There's a group of words that we translate believe and faith. They're words that are the words that mean trust. They mean confidence in. They mean to be firmly persuaded. They mean to be won over by. Those are the words we translate faith. None of the words mean I just intellectually agree. Now, of course, we believe theology is critical. Right answers are important. But they're the beginning of the journey. Not the end of it. They're a basis for faith, but they themselves don't constitute faith. And that is why James, so if you go to James chapter 2, he says this incredibly profound thing. James chapter 2, verse 15, real quick. He's talking to Jewish people, and he says, he says the most astounding thing. He says, verse 18, someone will say to me, you have faith, I have deeds. He responds, show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there's one God? Now listen, he's writing to Jewish people. That is the central theological declaration of Judaism. There is one God. He says, you believe there's one God? Good. But even demons believe that. And they shudder. And so the invitation, brothers and sisters, isn't to gather facts about Jesus, but to actually trust what you actually believe, or you say you believe. Right? So let me ask you a question. Her name's Val, by the way. Our drummer. I know. How awesome. Now, Val is not dating anybody. Brothers, I know, I know. I know, some of you are wimps and you have to be Facebooked and she has to initiate. And I call you cowards. I say, sitting right here before me are two very inwardly beautiful women who happen to be outwardly beautiful too. And you need to suck it up and go pursue them. Now, men, you can't play Xbox at your mom's house forever, okay? So get up! Someday. What were we talking about? 
Have I given you my disclaimer that I have a cold? Have I told you that yet? Okay, I am sicker than a dog up here, which means I normally don't have a great filter, but it's even worse. And so randomness reigns from the stage this morning. And let me tell you, men, if there's blood involved, I'm in. Broken bones, no problem. But if there's a sore throat and a cold involved, I'm the biggest wimp in the history of the world. I mean, I literally, last night I'm watching football. Justy, honey, could you, could you get me a pillow so I could be more comfortable on the couch? I mean, she's just going, you know, she's given birth. She, I mean, she... Ladies, can I get just a little amen on, on the, the wimps our guys are? And you know what? I'll own that. That's fine. That says, my security is in Jesus. YouTube the phrase man cold. When you get home, don't do it right now. And it's funny. All right. What we're talking about this morning is the idea that many in the church are convinced that accumulating right answers is what it means to have faith. Let me ask you a question. What, what James is suggesting is this. Suppose I have in the bumper sticker of my truck, I know, that, I know the secret to hair regrowth. Ask me how. And then you come out, and then I get out of the car, and you see my head. Do you trust the sticker or the head? Right? Ladies, he says he loves you. But he embarrasses you in public. He mocks you behind your back. He never calls, never apologizes. Does he love you? No, because his actions speak louder than his words. Brothers and sisters, we are saved utterly and absolutely as an act of grace. But there is faith that responds to that grace. And faith, shockingly, turns out to be how you actually live. You can say God is good all you want, but if you obsess over money, violate His boundaries on sexuality, you don't believe He's good. You can say, yeah, of course He's risen from the dead. And then you're utterly terrified of dying. Do you believe He rose from the dead? Now, of course we're in process, and of course we doubt. Doubt is never the opposite of faith. Never in the Bible. Sight is the opposite of faith. Faith is trusting what you don't see. Sight is trusting in only what you can see. Doubt, we're not talking about doubt. I got him. I'm chief of doubters. That is not antithetical to biblical faith. Biblical faith, at its core, is an active, passionate relationship. It is not a cross your arms, consume religious goods and services, and then do whatever you want. That is not how this works. And I am terrified that many of us on the last day will stand before Jesus and say, well, yeah, but I could have passed a seminary class. And he'll just simply say, well, I never knew you. Now, I'm not trying to scare us. I mean, God is judge. But I do want to say that I believe firmly the American church is held captive to a view of faith that is not faith. So what does it mean for God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes. What's it mean to believe? Go to Luke chapter 5. Let's look at people who believe. We are saved by grace. Make no mistake. None of this is earned. None of this we get credit for. 
But there is trust. Trust. That we trust something. That when we see the invitation, we receive the invitation by trust. And so faith isn't a matter of learning information. It's trusting the information you say you already know. I love, this quote just wrecks me. The American church has been educated far beyond its willingness to obey. So we love arguing. We love dividing. We love denominationalizing. You know, we love theological hair splitting. And how many of us obey the simple command, love your neighbor as yourself? Let's start with that one. How about love your enemies? I mean, let's get that one down and then we can argue about predestination. I mean, fascinating, but irrelevant to my neighbor. So brothers and sisters, make no mistake, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it again. I am a huge fan of theology. The reason I've given my life to teach is because I believe truth matters. But truth matters only if you trust it. So what does it mean to believe? Luke chapter 5, one day, verse 17, Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They'd come from every village of Galilee, from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some, bless you, some men came carrying a paralyzed man. I love this story. On a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way because of how crowded it was, they went up on the roof. And it doesn't say in English that they tore the roof open. But they did that and then lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd. Okay, so these aren't big houses. Maybe 25, 30 people max spilling out into the alleyway. Four friends trucking with a dude that's paralyzed. I don't know how many friends it was. I'm guessing four. Doesn't say. Trucking. The way houses were built back then is if you had an upper story, it was called an upper room, and the only way you could access it was from the outside. You didn't have an internal staircase, so maybe you'd have some stairs going up to an upper room, and between the upper room and the lower room, there'd be this roof of, it would be tile and straw and mud and bits and pieces of all sorts of extraneous stuff all cobbled together. And you can imagine, Jesus is teaching, very profound moment, and then all of a sudden just little bits of dust and straw start making their way down in front of Jesus. And imagine, I would imagine the owner of the house is sitting in the position of honor to Jesus' right-hand side, uh, hosting this. What's he start to do when he starts to see little shafts of light coming through? I imagine he's fighting his way through the crowd to get outside, to get upstairs. And imagine you're the paralyzed gentleman who's up there going, hurry up. I told you this wasn't going to work. This is a crazy idea. (laughs) Hurry up. And at some point, there's a big enough hole ripped in the roof that they lower the paralyzed guy right down. I mean, do you, can you imagine? This is the craziest thing. And what do you think Jesus does? You think he's ticked? No, I think he's laughing. He can heal houses, right? Verse 20. When Jesus saw there... Oh. So it wasn't, hey guys, you you have to dig through a roof and then I'll accept you. He saw the faith behind what they did. 
And what's he say? Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I'm the paralyzed guy, <laughs> anything else you want to add to that, Jesus? I mean, I'm, man, I'm grateful for forgiveness, but I was hoping for maybe some mobility or something, right? And, and, and I mean, the claim that Jesus makes to forgive this guy, and, and the word forgiveness here is fascinating. It means to dismiss. It means, literally, your sins are dismissed. Did the guy ask for forgiveness? Did he promise to give money to his synagogue? No. I mean, he just, Jesus saw their faith. And he said, you're forgiven. Now, there was a procedure you had to go through to receive forgiveness in the first century. You had to go to Jerusalem, go to the temple, buy an animal, offer it to the priests. They would sacrifice it, sprinkle the blood. Now you're forgiven. Did Jesus do any of those things? No, he's just a peasant roaming about the Galilean countryside, forgiving people. So there, the religious folks who were there checking him out were understandably upset. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew their thoughts. And so here's what he says. It's so brilliant. He's like, hey guys, let me ask you a question. Which is harder to do? To heal somebody or to forgive sins? Well, the answer is to forgive sins. Only God can do that. And he says, just so you'll believe that I have the authority to forgive, I will heal the man. The man is healed. Your faith, he says, when he saw their faith. Go, if you would, to Luke chapter 7. What does it mean to believe? Luke 7, verse 36. We've talked about this story before, so forgive the repetition. But it's one of my absolute favorites because it demonstrates this kind of boldness. Were these people won over by Jesus? Were they firmly persuaded by this Jesus? Absolutely. Were they passively sitting, consuming religious goods and services? No way. I don't know if they could have passed a quiz or not. All I know is they were so compelled they would unroof a roof to lower their friend to receive Jesus' healing. And they got that and a lot more. Jesus, verse 36, Luke 7, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, what's Jesus do to dinner invitations? He always accepts When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, you will remember uh, that the most likely scenario is that Jesus is in an outdoor courtyard attached to the Pharisee's home with maybe a half wall that kind of surrounds it. There would be a U-shaped series of couches called a triclinium, for those of you that care, and uh, and it would only be about this tall. And, and what would happen is there, would be, there wouldn't be chairs. There'd be these uh, pallets or uh, cushions around these things. And so what you would do is if this is the table, you'd lean in with your left elbow on the table. You wouldn't eat with your left hand. That was for other purposes. You would eat with your right hand. As you reclined at the table, your feet would be behind you. You'd reach and you'd eat out of a communal bowl. Okay, so when it says he reclined at the table, that's what he's doing. These meals would take forever. And if you remember last week, we talked about the Pharisees. To them, purity was of central importance. They took the laws given to the priests to offer sacrifices in Jerusalem. They took those laws and applied it to the dinner table. 
So ritual washing and straining drinks and all this crazy stuff they would, they would focus on. Around the edges of the courtyard, the poor, the misfits of Jewish society would gather, hoping maybe for a bit of bread or meat. If they were really bold, they'd throw out a religious question and hear the experts of the day debate it. But the number one unbreakable rule in these occasions is that the unclean people never entered the courtyard because they would make the people there unclean too. Remember how it worked. Unclean infects clean. Pharisees totally, totally focused on being clean. Unclean people, if they came in, would infect them. So imagine all the protocol that goes with a wedding, right? And just all the, you got to stand and do this. And when she comes and you're looking at her, and I mean, if you've ever gone through this, it's crazy. But that sort of seriousness attached to this scenario. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life. Now in English, it just sounds like, ah, she's made a couple of mistakes, just like all of us. No, no, no. No, no. She was notoriously, willfully, repeatedly living in immorality to the point that everybody knew who she was. They knew she was a stain on her family's honor. She was a blemish on the society, uh, probably in a small village. They're absolutely, I mean, she was notorious. And it wasn't like she just screwed up a couple of times. She lived a pattern of willful disobedience before God. That woman shows up and she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She came there with a jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping. That means she had to come out from outside, come into the courtyard and approach his feet. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Now, do you think the dinner party has come to a screeching halt at this point? <laughs> I mean, his feet are out this way, and she, I mean, she's obviously bent down over them, and she's sobbing. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, if you remember the story, you remember she's breaking so many pieces of Jewish protocol socially. Number one, she came out. From the outside to the inside. Number two, unclean would never touch clean. And she kissed him. A Jewish woman would never touch a Jewish man in public. She touched him. And then she takes her hair that's down. Now again, in English it doesn't sound like much, but then Jewish women wore their hair up as a sign of purity and modesty. To have your hair down was a sign of immorality. So she let her hair down to clean his feet with her hair. I mean, every single rule that you could have about interactions between sinful women and rabbis was broken. And it's so disturbing to the Pharisee who was hosting this party that the text says he thought there's no way this dude could be a prophet. Because, I mean, if he were, he'd know how much of a sinner she is. And he'd never let her near him. Jesus, knowing the dude's thoughts, tells this phenomenal story about forgiveness. If you've been forgiven a lot, you love a lot. And then he looks at her, verse 48, 
and says the same thing he said to the dude that unroofed the roof. Your sins are dismissed. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? Jesus said to the woman, your what? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So is what we should take from this is, okay, i got to cry and then I'm in? No, that's works. But Jesus saw the faith that compelled her to leave the wall. See, that is why we will absolutely and always be a community that makes room for the worst of us. Because if those folks aren't welcome, this isn't of Jesus. Because this is what Jesus does. He didn't go after the folks that had it all together. In fact, those were the folks that ended up farthest away from him. Their own pride and self-righteousness kept them far. But to those who were broken, to those who were not proud, to those without any speck of religious posturing or goodness, to those people, you're forgiven. I mean, I just find it astounding. Because I happen to be one of those screw-ups. One last one. You look like you're in the mood for one more. John. No, Luke, 18. Luke, that's right, that's how you say it. Like Darth Vader would say it. Verse 35, Luke 18. What does it mean to believe? If believing is just information... Well, demons believe. Now, of course, believing includes information, but it is not just information. And brothers and sisters, I urge you to consider whether or not social status is more important to you than publicly declaring your allegiance for this Jesus. I mean, how many of us would unroof a roof? No, I'll only follow Jesus if it's easy and convenient and there's parking and air conditioning and whatever else. I'll follow Jesus right when it's spoon-fed to me and, and it's really up to the religious expert. Right? We're people who love to follow people who follow Jesus. But many of us don't follow Jesus ourselves. So we, we side with, well, I'm a fan of this teacher. I'm a fan of this public celebrity. I'm a fan of this person. That's not following Jesus. So let's just... let. Can we just be honest and say the idols in our hearts are such that we always want to find a substitute for the real thing? And that can just be other believers. That can be a religious system. That can be a victim mentality that says, well, if, I mean, there's no way. I've, I've sinned so bad. No, that's not how it works. This isn't about how bad you are. It's about how good he is. And so we just want to be a community that says it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what you've done, where you've come from. The invitation that God makes to you, you specifically, is that you're loved beyond all reckoning and your debt has been paid for. But you got to receive. you got to trust that. you got to lean into that. And if it's more important for you to be approved of by your neighbors, your family, and your friends, and you're not willing to come out from a wall or dig through a roof, well, I might want to suggest that your faith isn't fully in Jesus yet. It's in something else. And that's okay. That's okay. But let's not call that following Jesus. 
I mean, Lord knows the imperfection in this guy is staggering. But I never want to say that my disobedience or that my mediocrity or that my sheer ordinariness is what following Jesus actually looks like. I don't want to excuse it. I want to admit it, and I always want to hunger to be the kind of person who would dig through a roof. To be the kind of person that if the entire religious establishment would turn at me aghast at my audacity of approaching Jesus because I'm unclean, that I'd still have been willing to do it. That's what I want to be. I just want to be that. I want to be so compelled by Him that I don't want a religion. Who wants that? Who wants rules? Who wants good enough? I want to know that I'm a child of His. I want to know that it truly has been finished on my behalf and that I simply don't any longer have to feel the pressure to perform religiously. And I want to be a part of a community where it doesn't matter who the upfront person is. If Jesus is a part of the thing, we're in. I want to be a part of a community where it really doesn't matter if the form of worship is one I prefer or not. I want to be a part of a community where much is expected of those who've said yes and little is, is expected of those who haven't yet. Where we expect believers to act like followers and non-believers to act like non-believers. Where we literally reserve our judgment for each other in the community, in our own hearts. That's what I hunger for. And I firmly believe, brothers and sisters, that where that starts is the abandonment of all sense of religious propriety. Where you literally get over yourself and say, my goodness, but for God's grace, I got nothing. I got nothing. And every now and again, those of us who've been following Jesus need to be brought back to that place. Because it's still true of us. It's still true of us. One last one. Luke 18, verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to shut up. You ever been a part of a church like that? That you weren't allowed to be sloppy or desperate? You ever been somebody who shushed out people like that? I love this part of the story. But he shouted all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and asked the man, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see. What's Jesus say? Receive your sight, your what? Your faith. Absolutely and forever, we are rescued as an act of grace on God's part. But what does it mean to believe? For God so loved the world, He gave His Son that whoever believes. What does that mean? Well, of course it means understanding. Absolutely. 
But that's not all it means. And there is a part of faith that is held out as not an earning or not a deserving, but as an act of prioritizing to where everything else is secondary. There is a part of actually trusting the information that we've already got. You've got everything you need to know already. If you didn't learn another thing, you've got enough already. All that sits now is whether or not you'll trust it. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, I mean, I feel like I can't actually preach all of this and then ask, and not ask the question, hey, is there anybody here who hasn't grabbed a hold of Jesus? Is there anybody here that hasn't said yes to him? And if you want to, I just invite you to stand up where you are. And, and, and I know that's embarrassing, but how could we do the, like, close your eyes and do the, I mean, it feels... Like, if it's more important to you to be approved of, well, then you're not, you haven't been won over yet. And that's okay. That's totally okay. Man, we are all in process. But I don't want to do it in secret. I mean, if any of you's here and it's like you've never said yes to this Jesus and you want to, would you be courageous enough just to stand up? And again, no pressure. We're not going to embarrass you. Not at all. But would anyone want to do that? And again, if you've said yes to him before, you don't have to do it again, just to be clear. Like, when I looked at my wife and said, I do, I don't have to keep saying, oh, I do, I still do, I do again. Nope. We got her covered. But would anybody? Let me ask this question. Is there anybody here that's already said yes but you feel like you've substituted a very shallow view of following for actual following. Is there anybody here that's kind of been woken up this morning and the yes you've said has been a highly contingent yes? Is there anybody here that would love to see more boldness in their faith and more courage to be the kind of person that would dig through a roof would you stand up if that's you? And we just want to pray. We just want to pray. Thanks for being courageous. And as always, we're not going to embarrass you. I appreciate you'd be honest. You're being honest. And what you're saying by standing is I want to be that kind of person too. I want to be the kind of person that would have that sort of boldness. And that's not something you conjure up by yourself, is it? So we believe firmly that this Jesus has covered for our mistakes. We, our sins have been dismissed for those that have said yes to him. And what remains now is the ongoing, progressive, gradual process of being more and more formed into his likeness, of gradually yielding more and more of our lives to his lordship. We don't want to just be listeners of a teacher. We want to be followers of a king. Now, for those of you, do you if you've been here for a while, do you remember how we used to pray for each other? Let's do that. So, for those of you who are standing, I'm going to invite some people to gather around you and pray over you, and your job in that moment is really sophisticated. It's to be prayed for. Okay, now hold on. Don't get up yet, because we got it. we got it. So, prayers... Sit down. Pray ease. Keep standing. Prayers, I want you to identify. All right, so if you love Jesus, 
And if you have lungs and eyes and uh, there is red blood in your veins, you are part of our prayer team this morning. I know, it's highly, highly sophisticated training. Your job is going to be to pray for the people standing. And guess what you're not going to pray? You're not going to pray that God would work. You know why? He's already working or you wouldn't be standing up in front of a room full of strangers. You're not going to pray that God fixes them. Because there's nothing deficient about being on the journey. What you're going to pray is that God would give them a spirit of boldness, that God would fill them with the Holy Spirit to the place where they are compelled by Jesus and they follow Jesus. Not other people that follow Jesus, not religious systems, but Jesus himself. All right? So would you find people, like we got a whole crew over here, so some of you are going to have to migrate down. What do you, Tim, what do you think? The ratio of prayers to pre-ease. We're going to need lots of prayers. All right, so prayers. People who are praying for other people, now you can stand up. And we need some of you from this room to come over into this room. And I know cross-pollination is really frowned upon. (laughs) But obviously these people are more honest than these people. (laughs) All right, now gather round the people that were standing. And if you don't want to do this, by the way, please do not feel any pressure. You are just more than welcome just to sit there and fight to stay awake or whatever. Now, if you stood up to receive prayer, are people around you, are people praying for you? If not, yell out no. We need more people. Okay, more people over here. That's it. More prayers. Ooh, I like that we've got some kid prayers. Listen, Jesus says... Your prayers count double, okay? He didn't say that exactly, but he meant that. All right, do we have coverage? Hi, Phil. We good over here? Okay, it's highly sophisticated. We want to keep this somber moment going for as long as possible. All right, I'm going to pray for the prayers, and then the prayers are going to pray for the prayees. Can you guys just kind of do the quiet a little bit and then I'll close this? If Val gets going, all Jesus will hear are drums. And he loves them. All right, so Jesus, would you speak now through the prayers of your people? And for those who just very simply and humbly have said the same prayer the disciples asked for, Lord, increase our faith. God, would you do that as an act of grace and mercy? Holy Spirit, would you come and would you do what we cannot do for ourselves? Would you wake us up? Would you unnumb our hearts? Would you open our eyes? And would you allow us to be compelled by you? So brothers and sisters, would you now pray over your brothers and sisters? 